Hello, I am Felix, and this is the Search Space, the Logic Programming Podcast. Happy New Year to all of you. I can't say for sure whether 2021 will be the year when logic programming finally takes over the world of software and ushers in a new era of clear and pleasant code, but I will do my best to help increase the chances. I'm very happy today to have Marcus Triska on the show. Uh, Marcus has a PhD from Vienna University of Technology, and he is the author of several widely used prologue libraries, as well as a book called The Power of Prologue, which is available online, and um, which promotes a style of prologue programming which takes advantage of modern developments in prologue systems. As a library author, Marcus' focus has been constraint satisfaction, which extends the logic programming paradigm to include reasoning over, for example, integers. Constraint satisfaction problems, or CSPs, is a big area of research, and most of it is not directly connected to logic programming or really to programming as we think of it at all. In short, CSP is a formalism that lets the user express a problem in a very succinct form and find a solution without having to implement a special purpose algorithm. The solution takes the form of assignments of concrete values to all the variables used in the specification. This is similar to Prolog, except that the values are not logic terms, as in Prolog, but uh, again, for example, integers. Many systems for solving CSPs work in a completely black box fashion. They take a file containing the problem specification as input and print a solution. There are also constraint-solving packages for most major programming languages, and they let you build up a specification by repeatedly calling special functions that the package provides. Sometimes they have a mechanism for defining constraints directly on, say, regular objects, for example, in, a, in a, an object-oriented language. But usually there is no tight integration with the core semantics of the host language. But logic programming and prologue present a special opportunity for a much tighter integration of constraint specification and satisfaction directly into a general purpose language because the semantics of Prolog and of CSP solving are so closely related. The effort to combine these two goes back almost to the very beginning of Prolog half a century ago. And as Marcus explains during our conversation, it's uh, still ongoing. The resulting paradigm goes under the name of Constraint Logic Programming, or CLP, and is a very comprehensive and powerful approach to programming. Many of the impressive introductory prologue examples you might have come across, such as solving a Sudoku problem in just a few lines of code, actually use a CLP package rather than just the logic programming core of prologue. And in many cases, that would be a package that Marcus wrote. So. Please enjoy the following conversation with Marcus Triska. Marcus Triska, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Felix. Hi, very happy to have you here. Um, Thank you. I'm, I'm flattered to be invited. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> there is so much to discuss. I mean, um, you have written quite a lot of... Uh, Uh, widely used prologue libraries and 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 a whole book. I mean, I guess you're still in the process of writing it. It's online, yes. the power of prologue. So there's a lot we yes. could talk about. So where to start? Well, one thing that I, uh, one of the many things that I like about your approach in your book and on your webpage is the very first sentence uh, that you have on your on your homepage, where you write, "The central theme of my research is software reliability." How can we guarantee correctness, robustness, and acceptable performance of our programs? So, so the reason that I'm Prolog is so much associated with, um, well, symbolic AI and also the AI winter of the '90s and some disappointment. So, for me, it's uh, as a programmer, it's just refreshing to have to come at it from that perspective of just writing good quality software. So, mm -hmm. so what is it about Prolog that you think is uh, makes it a good tool for writing uh, reliable software? Mm -hmm. I mean, before I even answer, I would like to point out that 
the first sentence on our homepage is actually a quote from a movie by Terence Malick. So mm. it says, find your way from darkness to light, uh, which is one of the quotes that occurs in Night of Cups, mm. which is a recent f movie by Terence Malick. Mm. That's true. I, I, I am a Terence Malick <laughs> fan, although I haven't watched that. Really? I haven't watched that movie, though. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Oh, but if you want to also talk about that quote, uh, maybe it plays into the into your thinking about yeah. programming also. Yeah. I mean, I think this particular quote also has something to do with Prolog because, as you mentioned, there was some disappointment also and also there are some misconceptions about Prolog which I hope this page or these texts are right help to maybe set right again or to give some new hope for Prolog programmers and yeah, give some ideas how Prolog can be applied in practice to let us write better programs. Mm. So in, in particular regarding software reliability, I think there are several points that make Prolog very well suited for writing reliable software. One point is that Prolog programs are typically quite short and expressive. So if you have only a few lines of code, then they are often easier to verify and easier to check. So this is one important characteristic of, of many Prolog programs mm -hmm. that you can express a lot with only a few lines of code. Another issue is that you can apply logical reasoning to Prolog programs. So for example, if you, if you have a Prolog program and under quite general assumptions, you can reason logically about this this code. Like, what what does it mean if I, for example, if I ignore one line of code or if I add additional lines of code, does the program get more general or more specific? Mm -hmm. Or maybe you can pinpoint fragments of code that you can show cause non-termination, for example. So you can give explanations that, that show to application programmers why your code has certain characteristics. And and this helps a lot, of course. And, and this is, is the second reason. Um, there are other, also other reasons. For example, Prolog makes it easy to describe test cases in a very concise way. Hmm. Um, you can describe many or often even an infinite number of cases and simply ask the Prolog system whether there is a counterexample to certain properties, for example. So hmm. this helps a lot, of course, to become more, maybe more convinced that certain cases cannot arise, even if absence of a counterexample is no mm -hmm. proof that the code is correct. You get certain maybe um, less general properties. It's, for example, there are no counterexamples of specific size and so on. So mm. these are these are some properties that that I think help to ensure correctness of programs when writing in Prolog. It's almost like its own testing framework, uh, just the language itself. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So how did you yourself um, discover Prolog, and how did you come to get this? what seems to be very great appreciation for this particular language. I was introduced to Prolog by Ulrich Neumerkel at the Vienna University of Technology in 2004. So I took the, it was part of my undergraduate curriculum. I started software engineering as my undergraduate degree at the University of Technology mm -hmm. in Vienna. And logic programming was a mandatory course for software engineering and Ulrich Neumerkel, who is now the convener, by the way, the convener of the Prolog ISO standards group, mm. he has developed uh, his own teaching environment called GUPO, which means uh, talk-assisted programming environment. And he has developed over several decades uh, a really nice teleteaching environment for introducing beginners to Prolog and this is also how I learned learned this language. And from there, I, I got this interest in prolog and constraints. Mm -hmm. So, well, so the, on an 
internal level, so to speak? What, what was it that attracted you? I mean, what was it that you have been spending um, a lot of time since then in, in mm -hmm. the program? Yeah, that's work? true. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to me, this was at a point where I, I got interested in, in many different approaches towards writing software. And as part of these undergraduate studies, I also had to write many different programs in, in various languages, like in, in C++ and in mm -hmm. many other languages too, like in Java, in Forth and PostScript. And what, there were also many lectures where many quite advanced algorithms were were taught. And I came to a point where I realized that if I were to continue using a lower level language, then I, I, ha I wouldn't have the time to implement so many algorithms or implement the algorithms that I wanted to try. Mm -hmm. So I was, in a sense, also looking for a better way or a more efficient way to experiment with different algorithms that I wanted to prototype. Also, long before this course, I was interested in timetabling issues, like in mm. school, for example, I always wondered how to, how did they implement these uh, algorithms and how did they find such timetables that suited many different classes and teachers. And I was always, always interested in, in scheduling and in combinatorial tasks. Mm. And I, I mean, a few years before that, for example, one fellow student came to me and asked for a solution to the, which you may now know as the send more money task, mm -hmm. where the task is to pick certain integers so that the sum of numbers um, gives satisfies certain constraints. And at, back at that time, I wrote a solution in C++ and I was uh, quite <sighs> disillusioned because the, the problem was which I found disproportionately long. Hmm. So when I saw that you could express this in a single line of prologue, essentially, uh, I thought, okay, this is really a nice way to express such tasks and to, to get solutions almost instantly. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I certainly like the whole kind of puzzle solving aspect yes. of logic programming. And, and that's one that often comes up as the first examples. And, and it's usually mm -hmm. quite mind blowing. Also, people get really impressed, like, you know, yes. a few lines of code, you can solve a Sudoku or send more money, etc. Yeah, or yeah. more complex puzzles. And then I guess traditionally, on the other side, we have things like knowledge representation, reasoning, like mm -hmm. the, some of the classical tasks in in AI. So I, I certainly appreciate all, both of those kind of sides of the spectrum. But I also think it's really exciting to think more about uh, logic programming as simply a, a great tool for programming. You know, never yeah. mind AI or any of these other things. It's just a good yes. tool for programming. So I would just like to try, I don't know if, if you agree, but I think um, just as a way of getting kind of a, a feeling for Prologue, <clears throat> I tend to think a lot about it as a really great, it has a really great dispatch mechanism. I think dispatch mm -hmm. is, is a thing, is one of the main things that gives different languages their flavor and strengths mm -hmm. and weaknesses. People have, uh, you know, in, in different languages explored uh, multi-dispatch, multi-methods and all kinds of stuff. And I think just simply that Prologue has the best dispatch mechanism available uh, if you choose to view it as that. I, I, do you think that's a reasonable angle to think about it also? I know I mean, it's a little bit... Can you... Mm -hmm. now, what, what specifically, I mean, which characteristic especially right. do you mean in this, in this sense even? I mean, dispatch mechanism, I know dispatch in, in Java, for example, a method dispatch. Mm -hmm. um, I must admit, I've never heard it even in the context of Prolog. So which kind of... What, what do you mean by dispatch mechanism for Prolog? Right, true. Maybe the word isn't used so much outside of OO even. I'm, if so, I'm sorry. But what I mean is this, the semantics of invoking some piece of code. So okay. in many functional languages, you have pattern matching as a way of uh, basically overloading the same function mm -hmm. name with several different implementations depending on the parameters. And mm -hmm. that is pretty much exactly what 
we do in prologue as well mm -hmm. although it's more general in prologue right mm -hmm. because yeah, you can i mean mm -hmm. In in I mean in term writing theory, for example, matching is usually used to denote one-sided unification. So unification where one part is essentially treated as fixed. Yes. And this is this is the kind of of dispatch <laughs> that is used in Haskell, for example, and in OCaml and in other func functional programming languages. And in in Prolog, as you as you said it is more general in the sense that that both sides of the equation so to say are treated as as true as truly variable yeah so yes this of course is is a very powerful concept and i mean this one could make the point that only in prolog or only in a in a logic programming language is a variable actually a variable whereas in other languages a variable is essentially only a, a placeholder or a bucket for a fixed value whereas yeah. in prolog uh, variable is truly yeah can be further instantiated it's a variable yeah. in the sense that we actually learn in 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 algebra yes so that's as you said pattern matching with unification so that you can pattern match in both directions and you can have a partial pattern match and you can proceed with the program mm -hmm. and 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 mm -hmm. have further matches later on uh, but and then on top of this you also have backtracking yeah i don't know if it's true. right to say that it's on top of or both of them sort of mm -hmm. are depending <laughs> on each other yeah i mean they don't depend on each other you could for example have only Uh, unification and um, commit to the first choice or to commit to a particular choice, for example, yeah. and then continue as before. You you could do it this way. There there are some languages that try this approach. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's fair to say that these are maybe the most common characteristics that are also usually mentioned separately of Prolog, unification and backtracking. Mm. It would also be conceivable to have backtracking without unification. So you could have a language like, say, OCaml, where you have only one-sided matching, but still go back, to, maybe uh, allowed to go back to try other alternatives. So it would be, at, at least it would be conceivable to have this. So I think it's it's fair to say that these are two characteristics mm. that are both available. Yeah, one of the reasons also that I like to kind of talk about it in this way is uh, because if you talk about, for example, only backtracking, it mm -hmm. could end up sounding like, okay, it's a nice, it's kind of a nice trick, or it's something that you need to do sometimes, but if I really need it, it's easy to implement or something like that. If but someone, for example, says, yeah, it's a uh, maybe this is a neat party trick, and you can implement it yourself, mm -hmm. then I mean... I welcome everybody to to try it and see if they can implement it also as efficiently as mm. it is a, available in Prolog. And also, of course, as you also implied, if these mechanisms are available, then they are also more likely to to get used. So, of course, if you don't have this mechanism available, then you tend to write also maybe programs that don't need it. So, in a sense, mm. the very availability also encourages programs that use it and that use it in the best possible way. And, I mean, in, in my personal opinion, the full potential of this mechanism is not even, not today, even fully exploited or, or fully taken advantage of. So, if you look at many Pollock programs, they are often what is called deterministic in Prolog, so they don't even admit alternative solutions. And maybe out of, of habit, mm. people also sometimes make code that would be very suitable for making, for allowing multiple solutions. Mm. They limit the generality of their code by taking only the first solution or taking only some particular solution, even also in cases where seeing alternative solutions would be very interesting to, to users of the code. Hmm. So, Are you talking about also quite uh, experienced Prolog programmers? 
sometimes also, I mean, whether experienced or not, in, in one recent paper I submitted to a conference, one of the reviewers also raised the question why I'm not committing to one particular solution, why I'm showing alternative solutions. Hmm. And I had to address this in the in a revised version of the paper and and added the remark that it's useful for users to see alternatives because they can then make an maybe a more informed decision or a more a better suited decision than a program would. So yeah, I, I, this is something that you mention a lot in your writing about the most general case or the most general query and the, how important it is to run the most general query and be, and that it mm -hmm. uh, behaves as expected. So but mm -hmm. uh, so I would like you to talk a little bit more about that, but just as a kind of a ramp up so that it's easier to understand what the whole point is. Maybe we could talk a little yeah. bit more about mm -hmm. so what is the sort of the promise of prologue and 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 in what ways is this promise typically fulfilled and in what ways are people <laughs> often disappointed i think that would be uh, useful to get okay. a get a feeling for and then we can move on okay yeah okay so <laughs> i mean I, the regarding the, the promise of prologue i would like to simply refer to what the very founders of, of prologue and the inventors uh, said about the language professor kolmerauer who recently passed away um, for example, stated uh, the promise or a key property of Prologue that you have a mechanism where you put terms in, logical terms, and you, in response you get logical terms also out. So this is, in a sense, as a, like an oracle where you, you can reason about logical input and get logical output in, in return. So And the, the key property is that what you get out is, in a sense, I mean, in a very precise sense, completely equivalent to what you put in in the first place. What we what we call a solution in Prolog is an answer where variables are unified to concrete values, which we call a solution. So this is a logical consequence of the of the program that one can show follows from the definitions if we regard the Prolog program as a set of, of rules. Mm. And, and another, taken from a paper by Bob Kowalski, is the, the notion that an algorithm can be decomposed into a logic aspect and a control aspect. So this is written as algorithm is logic plus control. Right. And if you read this paper... He makes the, the notion in this paper that everything that has to do with efficiency should be placed under the control aspect. So leaving everything that describes the actual logic and the meaning of the program to the logic part. So the, the promise, as I see it, is mm -hmm. that we can decouple the meaning from the actual performance characteristics of the program mm. so, that we, so that we can, among other advantages, verify the meaning, ideally in isolation, from any performance aspects, yeah. which I think is a very nice property that's worth striving towards. Um, Could we say in a, a simplified form that it allows you to think about only the what and not the how in the ideal case yeah yeah that's i think that's a, a fair way to to put it this is one aspect of it at least that mm. you can reason about the what maybe easier than if these aspects were intermingled you could even make the case i think that you can also reason about the how more easily than again if these features were intermingled because the the how is also very clearly defined in Prolog. And there is a predefined uh, search mechanism that is applied consistently. And so the how is quite clear in a sense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, what can I say about hopes that are not fulfilled? 
I mean, one way to become disappointed with Prolog maybe is if you start to wrestle with the control part and try to outsmart the system and say, um, I think you understand the meaning and then try to <laughs> modify the logic part in order to to affect the actual control part and then you lose solutions and then you lose lose properties you actually expected to hold when regarding the logic part in isolation mm -hmm. and maybe it's still not efficient and but one thing that i um one thing that's often striking i think with prolog is that it's sort of like algebra in the way that the bidirectionality mm -hmm. that you if you have x times 0.5 equals y yeah then if you have y, yeah. you can get x. If you have x, you can get y. And if you have neither of them, you can actually get examples of couples of x and y's. And yes. this is quite fascinating, quite different from most other languages. But mm -hmm. when you then start to construct more kind of real-world programs, it's really hard to retain that quality of bi-directionality. Do you agree? That's often a story under what condition? And, and well, under what when, you, when you start hard? writing more, you know, more complex programs, larger programs, it's okay. hard to maintain that quality to actually <clears throat> have your, <clears throat> your code be able to run in both directions or, you know, have free vari mm -hmm. variables on, on either side. Um, mm -hmm. Isn't that also a common thing where, where it feels yeah. like, oh, I thought, you know, I thought it would be yeah. like this magical yeah. all the way and it's really hard to yes 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 i've i've definitely heard this also before also from very experienced prolog uh, programmers this exact feeling personally i try to to make the code as general as i can so um, if it turns out to be not as general as possible personally i'm always trying to see whether i can't make it more general mm -hmm. and Quite often it turns out that, yes, if you use suitably general constructs, then you can, in fact, make many programs quite general. Hmm. And in, in other cases, maybe it turns out that you need an interface to your actual main logic that may not be as general, but the core aspects are, in fact, still general. So I think this is also an acceptable way to solve such issue issues by separating the core logic from an interface that may only be usable in, in some directions. So okay, so then you would need perhaps two interfaces to have a full loop, so to speak. One may even be only an in internal interface, so it, it may be necessary to expose maybe a, a one-sided interface, but internally to keep the code quite general and have your own personal test cases and generators and predicates that are, that are very general. So, and mm. yes, in some cases it may be necessary to, to the outside world pretend or emulate a stricter interface than what you are internally capable of, of doing. Mm. Could, you, could you just give an example of where this would yeah. apply? Yeah, of course. I mean, for example, let's look at the HTTP framework of, for example, SWI Prolog. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a, a library where you can set up your own web server, and this is a web server exactly as you expected. It it handles requests, and you and it serves answers in return, which are web pages or some redirects or some HTTP answers. And this is an example where it would be conceivable at least to have internally a sort of generalized web server which you could maybe also query into other directions and, and ask for example suppose I get back this HTML site what mm -hmm. were the possible requests that led to this page mm -hmm. and it could conceivably answer yeah these are, these are this is one example at least of a request that does serve this page and maybe this is another alternative a request that also serves this page. So yeah. it, at least it would be conceivable to implement it. And I, I haven't closely looked at the libraries. Maybe they even internally have such a mechanism. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is clear that to the outside, it doesn't make much sense because you, you only use it in one direction. But mm -hmm. this is just one immediate example where mm -hmm. it would be conceivable to provide 
internally a more general interface than what the outside sees. Okay. Okay, here's a, so as a sort of a benchmark. If you wrote a parser in mm -hmm. log for some, mm -hmm. you know, a, any any kind of language or DSL something. Yeah. How easy or hard is it to make it work in both directions? Yeah. Yeah. A very justified question. And I mean, this the parsing aspect is interesting also from a historic aspect, so to say, because parsing, as you may know, is was historically the first use case that Prolog should solve was uh, translating weather reports right. between French and English. Hmm. So it was the meteo system, and the predecessor of Prolog was also developed for this purpose of natural language processing and and this translation, and. For this purpose, at last, uh, DCGs were invented. So this is um, a sub-formalism in Prolog that lets us describe lists in a very natural way. But this it, mechanism... It's basically a syntactic sugar, right? Yes, the, there is an Im immediate translation to Prolog predicates. So this can be readily translated to, to Prolog predicates. And in fact, in most implementation, it also is implemented in this way. But the, okay. mm -hmm. the idea of DCGs and this implementation method, which is based on, on so-called list differences, this was not so easy to find. So the inventors spent, to my knowledge, a long time before this mechanism was discovered, hmm. which may now seem obvious, now it's available, but back then hmm. it wasn't. And in from, from what I've heard, at least, also from people who tried to use Prolog in this bidirectional parsing contacts, yeah. it also took a long while until the, the mechanisms were were really available to make this efficient, even in one direction only. For example, mm. to, to just give you one small example, to implement just one direction efficiently, I mean, especially space efficiently, where the system automatically discards accumulated tokens if they are no longer needed. This only happened maybe 15 years ago in, in some systems or 20 years ago. Uh, before that, they, mm. they didn't handle these cases efficiently. So in, in my opinion, currently it may be harder than necessary to do these things, but this indicates maybe also some opportunities of improvement in the systems and libraries so mm. that it becomes easier. And when when there is a case that currently seems hard or inefficient, I mm -hmm. um, can only encourage people to keep working on this and maybe discuss it publicly, for example, on Stack Overflow or on Compact Prolog, so th the necessary constructs and optimizations can be discovered and implemented to make this general and efficient. Yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to mm -hmm. say it's, uh, it's so great to hear you talk about these things and read because you... <laughs> uh, your whole attitude seems to be that uh, Prolog should be able to handle. Like if there is, if we yeah. come up yeah. against these kind of cases, there is no reason yes. that we couldn't uh, improve the tooling or the, uh, the implementations to handle yes. Yes. Th these cases. And yeah, I think we should definitely do it. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's move on to something else here. So another disappointment, let's say that's common is when it comes to uh, <laughs> so we have one disappointment I'm, I'm trying, after the yeah I'm trying to focus on disappointments <laughs> and, and okay that's a good strategy and and how to uh, <laughs> handle them because it's important to be able to handle disappointments yeah let's say a common complaint is when it comes to numerical calculations in Prolog mm -hmm. um, and of course mm -hmm. just like Lisp uh, Prolog mm -hmm. from the outset is not really geared towards numerical calculation as much as maybe most programming languages but still i mean it's 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 really hard to do anything really without being able to do numerical calculations and so then the problem is or has been at least that um, when you get into the realm of of doing numerical work you have kind of a special syntax with a keyword is and many of the normal nice properties of prolog start breaking down is that mm -hmm. correct? Uh, if you're using this construct, then indeed, yeah, it's it's correct. It's kind I mean, of the traditional... If, I mean, I personally, for example, learned Prolog. I mean, I learned it 15 years ago, so I'm 
maybe it, it doesn't yet count as traditional, but uh, I learned it without using is. So in, in Gupo, you cannot use uh, this predicate ah. you mentioned. Uh, and and this uh, your in Gupo, you're learning Prolog using a, a generalization of is, and which is written as, as hash equals. Mm -hmm. And hash equals lets you reason about integers, which are, of course, only one part maybe of numerical calculations, but arguably the an extremely important part. So in most programs I write, for example, mm -hmm. reason exclusively about integers and not about any other kind of numbers. Mm -hmm. And for this purpose, you can use uh, hash equals, for example, in, in GNU Prolog. It's, it's available right from the start. You can use it. In B Prolog, you can use it. In, in Sixus Prolog, yeah, you have to import a, a library and then you can mm -hmm. use it. So and also in, in other so it's hash equals is available in almost or in almost all uh, widely used prolog systems so you can use it and then you have don't have this limitation so you right. use this like a true relation that works in in all directions hmm so um f for someone pretty much like me, who has very little idea of how to actually implement a prologue engine. You would just expect everything to work for integers as well, you know, just as they do for, mm -hmm. for, for your other variables. And so it's yeah. not immediately apparent, like, why why is it so hard? Like, because it did take time after all. For I know that yes. uh, Kolmarao spent yeah. a lot of his efforts after the first product systems in, yeah. in this area, for example. And even though... You, as you say, this, these features have been available now for quite a while. It still, it took, mm -hmm. it took quite some time before this became uh, yeah. integrated. And it's not um, immediately intuitive why it would be so hard. You know, you have this amazing mm -hmm. system yep, with all the properties that we talked yeah. about before. Why is it so hard to yes. get integers, for example, into the mix? Yeah, that's uh, perfectly also a valid question. And I mean, I mean, software in general is is hard. I mean, it's it takes a long time to develop systems. I think this. If you just forget about Prolog for one second and look about, look at Emacs, for example, or some maybe a version control system. Mm. I mean, you could also raise the question: Why did it take so long to invent uh, Git? And in Prolog, the same. I mean, yeah, it's it's easy to say. Yeah, it took. 10 or 20 years. I mean, there are many things to do in Prolog. This is not only this aspect, but it's also a question of keeping everything reliable and keeping all other aspects, mm. aspects efficient. And in fact, the semantics, the actual uh, way of how these features should be integrated into a system were not completely clear. Mm. I mean, or take Haskell, for example, yeah? take take Haskell and, and Monads, which now seem like an, a quite obvious solution in a sense to, to important uh, issues they, they want to solve. Uh, it wasn't clear that Monads would be used, for example, for IO. And for many years, there, was, there were alternative uh, mechanisms also proposed. So you could also ask there, right. why, why did it take so long? And... I think on a general note, it's fair to say that we are progressing as fast as we can mm. with these systems. The fact that it takes so long, I think, is only a symptom of the more general fact that writing software takes a long time. And this is, not, is something maybe that we are not fully accustomed to, also as, as customers and as users of these systems. Mm. So... so you mentioned both kind of semantic issues and implementation issues and keeping it performant yes. and reliable. But so on the semantic theoretical side, was yeah. it uh, was it hard to kind of figure out what the semantics should be of integrating numerical um, constraints, uh, relations really among mm -hmm. among the other types of relations that you have in, in Prolog? I mean... It's it's one issue definitely to ask which constraints should there even be. Uh, so this is, this is an entirely also an entirely valid question and, and a separate 
field even, the, this is the question, which types of constraints do we want to support? But even if you decide upon some constraints that are useful and that are generally needed and that should be supported in a prologue system, mm -hmm. then the question still remains, how do we implement this in a seamless way? I mean, how do we really integrate a constraint solver into a prologue system? So the question about the relation between CSP, so constraint uh, satisfaction problem, and logic programming, and, and what, how do we integrate these aspects For example, there are two di different ways you could implement a constraint solver in, on top of Prolog, using attributed variables, for example, which many Prolog systems provide nowadays, or an alternative proposal is called m metastructures. So this also, for, for several years, it wasn't clear whether implementers should use metastructures or attributed variables. Mm for example. Hmm. And, and in my personal view, uh, we, haven't, we haven't yet, even, even today, the ideal way to implement these things is also not clear. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it would be okay, so it would be nice if you could expand to, to, to give you just one yes. for illustration only to illustrate this question for example the question how should different constraint solvers cooperate so for example i have a constraint solver over integers and i also have a constraint solver over rational numbers and it's clear that these solvers could in some sense work together because they all they both know some information about these domains, mm. which to a, to a significant extent also overlap. But the way how you would express this cooperation is not even invented today. Hmm. Okay. So this is just one, one very important question that I think is, is well worth working on to, to find a formalism that lets us express the cooperation of constraint solvers. Yeah. Hmm. Actually, we should uh, we we should um, define what constraints are or what yes. the CSP. Is. Yeah, that's not a good idea. Uh, yeah, then I'll give it my best attempt. So let's maybe start with uh, the definition of a constraint satisfaction problem. Yes, which I think is has a very simple definition. So it is abbreviated as CSP, constraint satisfaction problem. Uh, and it has a number of variables, and these variables have associated domains, which are which contain values that these variables can assume. This could be, for example, could be integers. So that says these variables must all be integers or in some range uh, or subset of integers. And then you have relations between these variables, and this can be very general. So the relation could say. For example, that two variables must assume different values or that the number of some elements must be fixed to some specific value and so on. Mm -hmm. um, so this is essentially the definition of a constraint satisfaction problem. And this is a very general notion. You could express all kinds of, for example, scheduling tasks in just this manner. So say, for example, you have... Uh, the variables are some time slots that you must fill with uh, uh, with lessons and the domains are these lessons that can be assigned to the time slots mm -hmm. and then you have uh, some constraints which are simply the relations between these variables that you say, for example, Latin must occur four times per week or uh, some other lesson must occur mm -hmm. a, a different number of weeks and these don't overlap and so on. Yeah. So these are, this is a general, um, a quite general framework for describing many kinds of tasks. Yeah. So it's, and, it's like arithmetic could, equalities, disequalities, some simple... For example, uh, for example, but for, for, I mean, for integers, these would be obvious relations, which are also well known. And But they can also be much more complex. Like, for example, you can have a relation, so a constraint that expresses uh, a cardinality. That means that, for example, you can express that the um, value four must occur 10 times when you consider all variables together. Mm. 
So this is a canonality constraint. So this is something. And you could have. So these more complex yeah? uh, constraints are often called global constraints. Uh, is that what we're? Yes, talking? in the context of integers, these are global constraints, mm -hmm. um, which express. I mean, you can always express it with binary constraints alone, but it is often useful to consider constraints that that are more, I mean, easy, that are easier to handle and involve many variables at once and express some property in a very, I mean, in a way that can be more easily stated than having to, than having to compile it down to more low-level constraints. But uh, in the context uh, of integers, yes, and it's, it's a global it, constraint. And these are actually, if we talk about software, you know, designing reliable software, etc., uh, global constraints are sort of really nice pieces of reusable code, you could say. Like once you yeah. have uh, yes, definitely. implemented some global constraints, yeah. you can combine them together and get very powerful yes. uh, problem formulations. That's very true. So hopefully yeah. people who don't have uh, some hands-on experience with these uh, mm. types of systems can get a sense that it, it, it is a similar flavor to what we how we characterize Prolog, that you think more about the yeah. what, not the how. It It is mm -hmm. like, well, in this case, even more similar to algebra. It is algebra, pretty much, mm -hmm. uh, how the way you set up a problem. So I'm just saying it to kind of stress, like the, it seems like a very uh, obvious match somehow between logic programming yeah. and constraint satisfaction. Yeah, and I mean, in fact, everything I, I said now about CSPs is also applicable to Prolog. If you think about it, in in Prolog, you also have you have variables, you have associated domains, which in, in plain Prolog are always Erbrand terms, named after Jacques Erbrand. So terms are the natural domains of variables that occur in Prolog. And, and you have relations between these variables. And in Prolog, you define these relations via predicates. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you could regard Prolog as an instance of such constraint satisfaction tasks where we reason about the domain of logical terms. Hmm. So already from this, we see that these, these formalisms are very closely related because, in a sense, Prolog can be regarded as constraint-solving over logical terms. Hmm. So this is the, the, the framework of constraint satisfaction, constraint programming is general enough to subsume also Prolog and vice versa. Hmm. In logic programming and especially, of course, also in Prolog, the way the a predicate is considered is fixed. So this is uh, logically a certain kind of resolution called SLD resolution, which is linear in, in the sense that you simply solve, in a sense, a sequence of goals. And this is how Prolog is actually interpreted or run, if you... If you mm post a query, the system generates such a sequence of goals and they are executed one after the other in a very defined and precise way. Yes. And constraint logic programming or CLP lets us generalize this mechanism to not only consider these goals one after the other, but in a sense at the same time also take into account information that is already known to deduce further information, like maybe um, to deduce that there cannot ever be a solution if you follow this path, mm. or to deduce that some variables are definitely um, restricted in their domains, even more restricted than was previously known. Mm. Yes. Okay, so then uh, once we have these systems working of uh, logic programming and constraint solving mm -hmm. uh, constraint so resulting in a constraint logic programming system what does it bring to the programmer what should it be like to program in such a system mm -hmm. yeah i think one major attraction of this approach is that and in fact in the in the literature this has even been been mentioned as the holy grail of computer science is 
this property that or the I, I think at least the ideal that users or application programmers specify a task and the system solves it. So this would of course be the ideal situation and it's arguable whether this has been achieved or is even possible to achieve but I think in in at least in some cases or at, in important cases even we are at least quite close to this because if you take the time to familiarize yourself a bit with the features that a constraint system offers you can apply it quite readily also to to several other kinds of tasks and even if it's not maybe as ideal as it could be or it as it is conceivable we are at least a huge step closer to this ideal than with other frameworks so if you know how to use this implement implicit mechanism then it frees you from many many considerations that you would otherwise have to apply like um, i mean implementing your own search strategies and and specifying lower level aspects of this of these solutions mm. so i think this that's one key attraction of this approach yeah yeah maybe we should come back to uh, as we promised to the point of the most general query yeah. <laughs> which uh, yeah. we have a lot of background now yes uh, yes, yes so it would be really nice to hear yeah. like uh, maybe I'm, maybe it's an exaggeration but it seems to be one of your kind of central pedagogical mm-hmm. points mm-hmm. if nothing else for kind of how to focus uh, one's effort when w- reading and writing prologue mm-hmm. what well, i think that the main aspect maybe that that is worth preserving is this ability to reason logically about your code and the most general query as you mentioned is simply um, a query where all arguments are variables and this in a logical sense this simply asks are there any solutions whatsoever so if you know for example if the system answers false or answers no there there are no solutions then mm-hmm. if you have preserved logical properties in your code then you know that it makes no sense to try more specific queries because they should also fail of course because it would be a logical contradiction to say on the one hand there is no solution at all and then for specific cases say ah uh, yeah that's uh, yeah. truly a solution so so this is a quite strong property to rely on and mm. of course it's also interesting for example as a polo programmer you you of course you write code but even more than writing maybe you you also read code you read your own code you read code from others and from previous authors and from your colleagues and in in these cases you 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 get you you simply get sent code for example and you the question then arises what does this code even even mean or what what does this predicate descri- describe and one mm-hmm. interesting thing about prolog is that you can pose these questions to the to the system so when you for example see a prolog predicate for the first time mm-hmm. then it's natural in prolog to ask yeah what do solutions look like in general and in such cases you start simply by posting this said most general query and ideally the system says yeah for example this is a solution or this other binding is also a potential solution and in in this way you get some feeling for what the predicate describes yeah so so you yeah. can how you can use it, what you can uh, input or what you can expect. Exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. So, and I guess it's also a discipline to always kind of run the uh, most general query to make sure that your predicate can actually handle it so that you haven't maybe by mistake yeah. uh, introduced something that makes it, you know, unidirectional or not fully possible to run in all directions. Yeah, it does is a nice test to, uh, certainly to see whether you're... Mm. You have made this possible. It's tempting, often it's tempting to um, think in one particular direction only, but it's nice if you keep your code 
so general that it's usable also in other directions and it's worth uh, striving towards this. Hmm. And and one, I mean, one important development also in, in current prolog systems is to make many more predicates have this property or to work on constructs that combine this generality hmm. with good performance. Mm -hmm. So this leads nicely to, I, I was going to ask you uh, what you think are the next sort of frontiers in Prologue. Mm -hmm. to, you spent, um, I don't know, at least 10 years working mm -hmm. on CLP integrations. Yeah. I don't know if you're yeah. perhaps continuing on that, but w yes. what other areas do you see that need further work? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm... So far, I was quite busy with uh, CLPFD and also uh, CLPP implementation, so Boolean constraints. Yes. And uh, I think these libraries or these ideas alone already are um, a major field and um, a very attractive field to to make further improvements. So, for example, you could it would it's always nice to implement these uh, ideas or libraries more efficiently. So this is something that is, will take a long time also to find more efficient ways to maybe consider small examples where they currently are not as efficient as, as, you, as you want them to be and then improve them for specific use cases. And this alone, I mean, for comparison, Sixtus Prolog, the constraint solver for Sixtus Prolog, mm -hmm. is, is hundreds of times faster than, for example, what I've implemented. And it's still yeah. also constantly also being improved. And they're working all the time to, to make it more efficient and to, to introduce new types of constraints. And also to, to, they're working on test cases. And this is, of course, also always nice to have to, to really test these libraries and ensure the correctness. Yeah. And But this is only, I mean, you can spend your entire career even improving these libraries and porting them to other systems. And, and of course, you can always also, just recently there were, I mean, just this year, several new prolog systems have appeared or are now appearing. For example, there is, Uh, Rusty Wem, which is the Warren abstract machine implemented in Rust by Mark Tom from ca Canada. And there is Oprolog, which is implemented by hmm. Kenichi Sasagawa uh, from Japan. And there you have Tau Prolog and sa some other Prolog systems, uh, which are now only appearing. And they, they all have also their own ambitions and focusing on reliability or efficiency. Or in the case of Tau Prolog, it's implemented in JavaScript and they can embed Prolog in, in a web browser, for example. So and this, I think this will create a whole new type also of opportunities where you suddenly have Prolog available in JavaScript and can, for example, inspect the document object model and maybe manipulate also the, the web page you're currently displaying and making some operations easy. I mean, who knows what, what's coming from, from this combination? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, was, I don't know. Now my last question seems a little bit superfluous. I was going to ask what you envision for people to use Prolog for in the in the future or, mm -hmm. or in the near future. I mean, like, what would be your vision? Where? <laughs> yeah. What would be the niche or the? Yeah. For Prolog. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, depends what you think. I mean, with near, because to me, <laughs> I mean, I mean, if we reach it in ten or twenty years, to me, it seems quite near so um, and on a 20-year horizon maybe i hope that um that we we see for example the formalization of legislation with prolog so this is hmm. one i think one potential use case where you could use a prolog or some logical description to encode mm -hmm. encode laws and legal texts or contracts And mm -hmm. and then prove uh, apply logical reasoning to deduce certain properties of the contract. For example, to deduce whether it is uh, satisfied or permissible, or whether it yeah to to see, for example, how many laws affect you as a particular type of of company 
And I think this is a f completely fascinating topic, and I think this is uh, this will be a, a huge project and um, a very interesting project. And also, uh, uh, if we can, we manage to make this work a huge, hugely important application area for Prolog, because potentially all governments and um, I mean all kinds of entities, legal entities, and all kinds of citizens have potential use cases for such a system who knows who knows maybe in, in 20 or, <laughs> or 30 years this is uh, such systems will become available and may, maybe some simpler systems will become available much sooner even so for example if you are looking now at uh, smart contracts as they are called in on the ethereum uh -huh. blockchain so this is uh, as you see the way they are currently done This opens all kinds of security issues, and only recently there was a major, uh, major fraud in such a smart contract, as it's called, mostly due to some deficiency of the programming language they are using, where they simply forgot mm. one keyword, and this exposed an important data field and allowed some type of fraud. And um, my hope is that using. Uh, a higher level language, such issues can be prevented yes. or can be proven to be not hmm. applicable. So this was this was, yes. is to me one of the most famous, of the most attractive and most interesting applications. That's very fascinating, <laughs> um, and that's something <laughs> we will try. I will try to follow up on that on the okay. podcast also. It's been really nice to talk with you. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of more questions that I yeah. didn't get time to ask. And I, we talked about some pretty low-level stuff. But yes. I really wanted to get the chance since you're such, you have implemented <laughs> some really important libraries. And mm -hmm. I wanted to get the chance to, to get the, some of the low-level details. And also to, to really uh, present the field of constraint logic programming mm -hmm. and how the different pieces fit together. And I think we really did. Uh, is there something, you know, that you feel that you would like to add or something you want to um, make an advertisement for or anything like that before we end? Yeah, yes, I, I would like to take this opportunity and to, to really thank all readers of my book And to really thank from the bottom of my heart everyone who provided feedback about this book or about uh, things that I've written, I, I really greatly appreciate all feedback. And I uh, only recently, when someone visited me in Vienna, and I was completely uh, flattered. So if you are ever in Vienna, please also visit me, and it would be a pleasure to meet you. And thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Thank you for listening to this conversation with Marcus Triska. Again, I find Marcus' perspective very refreshing, especially his optimism when it comes to keeping to keep improving Prologue and overcome its current limitations. In fact, as Marcus described, many of the limitations that are typically brought up as criticism have already been dealt with, sometimes even several decades ago. So partially the problem is educational rather than technical, and I really recommend Marcus' writings to get a deeper understanding of Prolog's unique capabilities. In the show notes to this episode, I've linked to a bunch of Marcus' uh, texts, For example, he has uh, written a great comparison between the impure way of handling arithmetic expressions use, using the predicate is, which I mentioned in the interview, and the CLP way. So if that wasn't completely clear to you, which honestly it probably wasn't, have a look at the show notes. Just like the preceding three episodes, this one was recorded in 2018. It just took me a long time to get the podcast off the ground. And since then, Marcus has also started a YouTube channel where he explains and demonstrates a lot of topics in logic programming, including some that we discussed. And of course, that's also highly recommended, not least the Terence Malik-esque introduction. All right, dear listeners, in 2021, you should expect new episodes a bit more frequently on this podcast. 
I won't make any promises, but I have a long list of interesting people that I want to talk with, and I already have some really nice material lined up. And as always, I really do appreciate all the feedback I get on Twitter or email. So if you have any suggestions or questions or complaints, please don't be shy. You can find me on Twitter at searchspacepod and on email felix at thesearch.space or visit the webpage on thesearch.space. And if you are so inclined, you can buy me a cup of coffee from there and that will give me a warm fussy feeling. If you like this podcast, please share it with your network. And if you love it, please give it five stars or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen so you can help other people find it. The music is Phase One by Silo Zyko, used under Creative Commons license. Bye bye, see you soon. <laughs>